from the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner. Today, we will be discussing genetic counseling considerations related to bone marrow transplant. We will speak with two genetic counselors who have specialized experience working with patients undergoing bone marrow transplant. Our speakers will provide some background information about bone marrow transplant and terminology, overview of some hereditary conditions that may be treated with bone marrow transplant, genetic testing considerations, and some details about the experience of undergoing bone marrow transplant. We certainly can't cover everything related to bone marrow transplant today, but these wide-ranging conversations will touch on hematology, immunology, oncology, metabolic genetics, lab genetics, fertility preservation, and psychosocial counseling skills. We hope you learn a lot in today's episode, and we hope you are inspired to learn more about this area of genetics and healthcare. Our first speaker today is Kaylee Dollarshell. Kaylee is a hematology genetic counselor with the General Hematology Department at Children's Hospital Colorado and the University of Colorado's Hemophilia and Thrombosis Center. Kaylee will provide some great background information and will walk us through an example fictional case, highlighting the potential personal, family, and reproductive implications of bone marrow transplant and related genetic testing. Now, over to Kaylee and podcast subcommittee member, Mary Pat Bland. Today, I'm happy to welcome genetic counselor Kaylee Dollarshell to the program to talk with us a little bit about the less commonly discussed topic of bone marrow transplant and how this might come up for some families we see. Kaylee, thanks so much for agreeing to talk with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. I'm wondering if you could start by sharing a little bit more about yourself, your role, and how you interact with patients that may need bone marrow transplant for treatment. I am based out of Colorado, out of Denver. I was actually born and raised in Colorado as well. I am a hematology genetic counselor. I split my time between Children's Hospital Colorado and the University of Colorado's Hemophilia and Thrombosis Center. So I see both pediatric and adult patients, but for today's discussion, I mostly work with pediatric patients in the realm of bone marrow transplant. You know, I can be involved in several different spots when it comes to bone marrow transplant. Sometimes I am involved on the beginning end, kind of closer to a diagnosis, helping diagnose somebody that may be a candidate for a bone marrow transplant. There's sometimes that I may be speaking with a family as they're going through the preparation for a bone marrow transplant, which can be kind of a whirlwind because that is a very fast, quick, and important step that can cause a little bit of bottleneck when it comes to timelines. And then sometimes I'm seeing families that had a bone marrow transplant years ago and, you know, our technology has certainly improved that we now have different testing options and genetic counseling options that weren't available before. So I definitely work with a lot of the spectrum, just depending on when we meet with the family. At the start of our discussion, can you provide just some general background about bone marrow transplant as it relates to genetics and genetic conditions? Yeah. So bone marrow transplant, just as it sounds, is just like similar other organ transplants is giving somebody a donor's bone marrow. For the most part, there are other forms of it, but in this context, I'm going to be talking about bone marrow donation from someone other than yourself. And we're giving you bone marrow because for some reason, something is misbehaving in your own. And, you know, your bone marrow is where you're kicking out all of your blood cells for the most part, kind of three major categories, your red blood cells, your platelets, and your white blood cells. Sometimes it will be that you aren't kicking out enough 
cells, or you may be kicking out cells that are not functioning correctly. And, you know, bone marrow transplant, as we'll talk through in a little bit, is it's a very big process. And so it is certainly not our first line of treatment, but sometimes it is depending on the severity of what your condition is posing. But there's a lot of times that we'll go through other steps before we're considering bone marrow transplant. Can we give you somebody else's blood cells, whether that be red blood cells, platelets? Can we do some type of a treatment to suppress your immune system to try to help boost your bone marrow production. A lot of times it's when those have exhausted, or if you're starting to show any scary things like pre-leukemias, myelodysplastic syndrome, actual malignancy of the bone marrow that we're going to consider going with the bone marrow transplant. It's a very complex process and we'll touch on it a little bit through today, but there are many genetic and non-genetic conditions that would pose somebody to be a good candidate for bone marrow transplant. Can you talk maybe about different categories of patients that might need bone marrow transplant and then maybe give us a list of most common conditions you see in that category or that might come up for a genetic counselor that works in the bone marrow transplant area? Definitely. And there's, again, a wide variety of indications. But again, it's usually because the bone marrow is either not doing its job or something's impacting the bone marrow so that it's not doing its job. I'd say really common kind of categories of conditions include hematology, kind of where I come in, really impacting the different blood cells that are being produced. Immunology and hematology have a very solid overlap. And so that can kind of get a little intertwined, but definitely there's conditions that impact the immune system that I won't talk on as much today that can put you as a really good candidate for a bone marrow transplant. There's certain types of metabolic conditions that will impact the bone marrow. Again, not something I work in too often, so I won't touch on that too much today, but I'd say some of the most common conditions that I run across in my world that tend to have me involved as a genetic counselor are going to be things like the myelodysplastic syndromes. It's kind of been historically called the pre-leukemia. Your bone marrow is kicking out some funky looking blood cells and they have high potential to progress into something like an acute myeloid leukemia, an AML. We've seen that about 20% of those can tend to have a germline finding underneath them. And so we at our institution do like to see all of the cases of myelodysplastic syndrome come through for a genetic counseling consult and decide if and when genetic testing is appropriate. I would say the next one would be things like Fanconi anemia, telomere biology disorders, which, you know, historically were really kind of known to be dyskeratosis congenita, but as time has gone through, we've really noticed it's a huge umbrella of conditions. So most of the time we'll call them a telomere biology disorder. Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome can mainly impact some of your white blood cells, pancreas growth, but eventually can impact the bone marrow and cause it to stop working correctly. And then I'd say maybe the last one would be things like Wiscott-Aldridge syndrome, which can impact your platelets, but then also have some really major impacts on your immune system, all of which come back to bone marrow. So bone marrow transplant sometimes will be a good fit, but it's also really important to remember that a lot of these conditions are a wide spectrum. And there's some patients that have those conditions that will live the rest of their life using certain types of treatments that don't include bone marrow transplant, and some will receive a bone marrow transplant very early in life. So it's certainly going to be variable depending on the patient and family. That's super helpful to know and to keep in mind. When you work with families and you're talking about genetic testing, what range of genetic testing do you generally cover? Do you cover germline only? Do you cover things like HLA testing also? Tell us a little bit more about that. 
Great question, because I always really like to start some of my sessions when I first meet with families to tell them we throw around the word genetic testing or the words genetic testing very frequently, and it can mean a vast variety of things. And so I like to at least tell families, hey, I'm going to be talking to you about this type of genetic testing, but you may hear other providers that are also talking about different types of genetic testing that are testing for different things. So I end up obviously spending a good majority of my time talking about germline testing, trying to figure out if there is an underlying hereditary condition that's driving what's going on. I always like to specify too that in the world of hematology, somatic tends to be used sometimes, but we can also use the word clonal and constitutional. So sometimes we'll find genetic findings in the blood or the bone marrow that you may not have been born with that will be referred to as a clonal change. If you were born with that change that's present in other parts of the body, then it may be referred to as constitutional. So in terms of solid tumor versus liquid tumor, which is kind of what I'm involved in, you'll hear clonal versus constitutional, maybe even a little bit more than somatic versus germline. But I do try to at least talk about somatic findings just to let family members know that they were there, but we may do testing of other tissue types to confirm if they are germline or not. I don't personally coordinate the HLA typing, which is going to be the typing to see if you would be a good candidate as somebody's bone marrow donor. Usually if we have somebody that comes in and is having any one of a conversation that bone marrow transplant could be a possibility, they're going to likely have first degree relatives have HLA typing to see if those first degree relatives would be a matched donor so that we can have that information as soon as possible. And then we'll kind of talk through other workups for the donors later. Genetic testing tends to be something that I cover in many facets and try to at least always remember that the family is hearing the words genetic testing in a bunch of different scenarios and really trying to let them know that those can mean different things. You talked about how you can be involved in a lot of different points in the journey. I'm wondering if you could just maybe give us a fictional example of what a patient's journey might look like as it relates to bone marrow transplant and kind of walk us through step-by-step what that might look like and how you might be involved. Even to kind of go from the very beginning, we may have, you know, a kiddo show up into the emergency room because they are having just some pretty significant bruising, nosebleeds. We do some very traditional blood work and we find out, man, you actually are not kicking out enough platelets, red blood cells, or white blood cells, which you'll hear the term pancytopenia, meaning that they've got all of these different blood cells are lower than expected, which can be caused by a bunch of different things. So then that'll usually trigger a multitude of workups. Usually how they end up coming back into our office is that we have done something called a bone marrow biopsy or aspirate going into their bone marrow to see what's being produced. And it shows that they are not producing things as expected. Let's say in this case that we looked in the bone marrow and we noticed that that individual is showing signs of myelodysplastic syndrome. The cells in the bone marrow are kind of acting and looking funky. And then when we did cytogenetics, so genetic testing specifically on the bone marrow to look for some of those clonal changes, we noticed that this individual had only one copy of chromosome seven. So monosomy seven, which is not in a constitutional germline setting compatible with life. It's almost always going to be found as kind of a clonal somatic finding, but that one really triggers our interest because for one individuals that have this monosomy seven and their bone marrow and blood are at a very high risk of progressing to an acute myeloid leukemia, which again, once you get into that leukemia setting is going to be a lot harder and more difficult to treat. 
The other thing that sparks our interest is there are certain genetic conditions that can cause specifically monosomy 7 myelodysplastic syndrome. And so I get involved as the genetic counselor because it's myelodysplastic syndrome, but we also go in with a very special interest with that monosomy 7 that this could be something like Vanconi anemia, Lee-Fraumeni, Gata 2, SAMD9, there's kind of a larger list. So I meet with the family as we most of us do with genetic counseling. I'll go through a pretty detailed personal history, family history, and then we'll talk about what genetic testing for a germline condition would look like. And anytime that we have someone that is showing dysplasia in the bone marrow, similar to like a tumor, I don't want to use that tumor type to test. And so instead of using the bone marrow or the blood, which is a production of the bone marrow, in cases where there's this dysplasia, dysplasia going on, I need to use a different tissue type so that we can have more confidence that we aren't catching either somatic or clonal events in our testing or missing something that may have been reversed in the bloodline. I speak with this family and we coordinate something called a skin biopsy where they take a very small amount of skin and they send that off for culture where they're going to grow out the fibroblast. That culture helps us guarantee that what we're testing is really coming from the skin fibroblast and we're not getting blood contamination in that sample that could give us false results. Skin biopsies are pretty easy to collect. The culture can be a little finicky and it usually does take about three to four weeks to culture, which is not a process that can be sped up. So we like to get on that as quickly as possible and get that growing. After that fibroblast culture is back and it comes back that this patient is heterozygous for a pathogenic GATA2 mutation or variant. GATA2 is known when it is germline to pose a very high risk of myelodysplastic syndrome and acute myeloid leukemia, which is going to be our biggest concern here. It can also impact the immune system, the lungs, some hearing issues, but especially now knowing with all of those findings that this is going on, I bet the bone marrow transplant team is going to move a lot quicker into getting them through a transplant to avoid this patient to progress to a leukemia. As we go through that, now I have to start expanding where we're going. Sometimes the genetic findings will impact what type of bone marrow transplant regimen this patient will receive or kind of a preparation. And the other piece that I'm going to be doing kind of in the sideline is, wow, we do now have a germline finding. If any of these first degree family members are being considered as a donor, I need to make sure that they don't have that same genetic change. So looking through this patient's folder, I noticed that brother is a matched donor and is going to be considered as the donor for this patient's bone marrow transplant. We do testing on him, which can be done via peripheral blood if he's not showing any signs of anything dysplasia or malignancy wise. Sent off brother, he's negative. So we can go ahead and move forward with him as our donor. And then I also, just in case, because GATA2 can be very variable. I send it off on parents and turns out the dad is also heterozygous for this GATA2 finding, which is not terribly shocking. Start talking to him and he talks about having some kind of really nasty sinus infections growing up that came pretty often. He had one episode of pretty bad leg swelling like lymphedema. So we set him up with an adult hematology and immunology team to take care of him. But that's typically kind of how things will work in my kind of acute setting. And then of course, as the patient gets older, we may talk about, you know, what does this mean for future kiddos with the special consideration that oftentimes a bone marrow transplant preparation will cause infertility just because of the impacts of the treatments. But we can also talk about things like fertility preservation can certainly be a journey and it can be a journey over time. Or it can be all of this happening within a month or two and really racing to try to get genetic information back before transplant to help us with that preparation.
It's super helpful. You talked about testing parents and potentially siblings, and you, you mentioned that if they seem asymptomatic, consideration of doing that on blood. Do you ever consider doing skin fibroblasts or buccal or saliva samples instead as a preferential sample type? Or do you feel like in these kinds of cases, when you're doing subsequent testing for family members, blood most often is reasonable? You know, I think that the opinion on that could certainly be variable amongst other genetic counselors. I think that most of the time, if these family members are undergoing workup to be a potential donor, that they're going to have already had some type of a routine blood work done. And I'd say if any of that blood work showed any abnormality, I would certainly think about sending a sample other than a blood sample, such as skin fibroblasts or a buccal or saliva sample. I'd say that usually when it comes down to timelines, I think everybody would always like to do testing on skin because it is kind of a gold standard and our best resource. But usually when it comes down to timelines, I don't have enough time for another three to four weeks for skin fibroblast culture. So we'll often end up sending peripheral blood unless there's any indication something is going to funky in the blood, which if that's the case, they probably are going to have a better look on if they're going to be a suitable donor in general. I think that a buccal or saliva sample could certainly be a really good alternative for that as well. There's always a little bit of a risk of blood contamination in buccal or saliva samples, but it's certainly most likely going to be a minority sample type in there. So I think that buckle and saliva would be a great and easy option, especially if you've got siblings that are younger and have had a lot of blood pokes recently, we can save them one more as well. You gave us a great example of what it might be like for a fictional patient to go through this process. I'm wondering if there's a detail or two about the bone marrow transplant process that surprised you or really helps you better understand a family's experience if they need this treatment. Certainly. I mean, I think the biggest surprise to me when I started working in the bone marrow transplant setting is how long and difficult of a process this is. And certainly other organ transplant procedures have a lot of prep and actual hospital stay involved, but I definitely think with the bone marrow transplant, it tends to even be lengthier. I mean, for the most part, what bone marrow transplant is involving is we are using treatments to prepare your body to get rid of your bone marrow. And usually that's through pretty much a chemotherapy and a pretty aggressive treatment to rid your bone marrow, to allow the body to have room for a donor bone marrow. And with that, we are taking away all of your red blood cells and your platelets and your immune system. And so you're feeling pretty crappy. You're potentially having a lot of maybe subtle bleeding concerns if you're low on platelets. And especially with the immune system being down, we have to be really careful about what you're being exposed to during that time. So I've had families that aren't able to see some of their family members during that time because there's just too big of a risk of bringing in an outside infection. Many times, almost all the time, you're not going to be able to be attending school during this time. And you're often having to be very close to the hospital. You're usually in a environment that we're having to keep very, very clean to avoid any type of infections. This flips families' lives upside down, and it's not only upside down for a couple weeks. This is months and months at a time. The hospital stays end up usually being a month or two at minimum for a bone marrow transplant. I just never want to take it lightly when we have these conversations with families that it's not just a quick transplant. It's going to be a pretty big process. And in fact, there's a very strong regimen that they go through to prepare the families and make sure that all the supports are in place for a bone marrow transplant. And I've had families that the transplant has been pushed back quite a bit because the family is just unable to show 
or demonstrate that the support is in place that will help that patient get through there. So it's very important that the whole family's on board, whether that be direct family or family and friends. Some kiddos are missing out on entire school years because of things like this and having to swap sports and it can be a very big life impact. You know, another thing that kind of relates to that that I didn't really know until going into this process is that if you're reviewing a chart and trying to find the date of a transplant, they're often going to consider that transplant date to be day zero is where the regimen begins. And it tends to last over several days, weeks. But if you're looking through a chart and trying to figure out the date of a bone marrow transplant, it's usually going to be listed as day zero. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about some of the other unique considerations for bone marrow transplant genetic counselors, things like sibling cord blood banking or fertility preservation. Yes. So when it comes to patients that have a condition that right now or in the future may require a bone marrow transplant, something that family members often think about is how can we prepare for that? And one of those things is that traditionally the best HLA match that you're going to get within a family is going to be a full sibling. And there's about a 25% chance that a full sibling will be a full match to you. There are times where families will go through things like pre-implantation genetic testing to try to coordinate that a future child will be a HLA match for a child that they already have with a condition. And then there's also the opportunity that if you did, or if you did not do PGT or any type of prenatal testing for HLA, we can always plan to collect a sibling's cord blood at birth. That's kind of our day zero blood source. And we can store that in case we could ever use those cells to help us with the bone marrow transplant for the sibling down the line. And so some families will utilize that option to just have that in their back pocket if ever needed. There's actually a really great program right now. It's called Sibling Connection and it's sponsored by Viacord. And I'll be honest, there may be other programs, but that's the one I'm most familiar with. They offer free cord blood banking to families where they have a child with one of the conditions listed on their site. And many of the hereditary bone marrow failure conditions that I work with are often on that list. And that can be a free storage for those families because otherwise cord blood banking can be a pretty pricey process and you end up having to pay each subsequent year to keep that stored. So if you do have any families that meet those criteria, that has been a really great resource that some families may utilize as well. We talk about storing sibling samples and just making sure that we prepare family members if any of them are going to act as our donors. Another big implication, like we had mentioned before, for bone marrow transplant, again, depending on what type of prep regimen they had, a lot of those treatments are very aggressive, just similar to chemotherapies where they can impact the reproductive system and leave a child at a very low fertility or no fertility rate. And so we are starting to have better discussions as kiddos are being prepped for bone marrow transplant of, would we like to do any type of fertility preservation? That is certainly a little less invasive in some aspects for a male versus a female. That's a really tough topic sometimes to broach with someone that's under the age of 10 and the actual logistics of having that process move forward or does insurance cover it? Who's going to pay for storage of these things can be very complicated, but there are certainly programs that are making that more available. And I think the conversations are happening a lot more often now than they used to, to at least give some of these kiddos the option of family planning in the future with their own germline cells, especially if I've met a family that has already gone through the process of bone marrow transplant. Something to just keep in mind, just trying to be sensitive to 
the fact that reproduction using their own cells may not be an option for many of these families and just trying to be aware of that as you move through those conversations because they may be something that is pretty delicate to discuss. I'm wondering if there's any misconceptions about bone marrow transplant that you'd like to address. Biggest misconceptions would be that it's a pretty quick operation. You get in, you get out. We've already talked about that pretty much in length. I think another big misconception that could be for any of us is that donating or being on the registry for bone marrow transplant is really easy. And a lot of times as a donor, you may be able to donate just using like a peripheral sample. So instead of having to actually go in and do a bone marrow biopsy or aspirate, if you are ever interested in being a bone marrow donor, you can often quickly sign up and they will just kind of quickly type you. And then if you are ever a match to somebody, they will connect with you. Something that we could all consider is just signing up for one of those registries to be a donor ourselves because it's really easy and it makes a huge difference because we have some families that have no matched related donors. And then when we go into the outside unrelated donor registry, they still don't have any great matches. So the more we can booster that. And I think that's a common misconception is that, you know, there's so many people on this earth. How could I not find somebody that has a match to me for my transplant? And it's possible. So the more of us that can join the registry, the more that that can help. I'm wondering if there's any important things that we didn't discuss that you'd like to share with our listeners. You know, I think that the biggest thing to remember if you're working with a family that is potentially or actively undergoing a bone marrow transplant is time is money and trying to get sample types as early as possible in the process is going to save genetic counselors a whole lot of headache and obviously the family and providers. And so we are really trying to implement processes where we are collecting a peripheral and a skin biopsy sample very early on in the process here so that that skin fibroblast culture can be cooking because that tends to be the biggest bottleneck. And we do have times where those cultures fail and we've got to start all over. So at least you can have that. So I would just say being prepared with conversations. Most of the time we're going to be doing HLA typing very early so that we're not scrambling to get that done, figure out who would be a good donor. And then just sample type, sample type, sample type is so important to consider in a situation. What is going to be my most reliable sample type that matches my timelines? Again, if you have any sign of a dysplasia or a malignancy, skin biopsy is definitely going to be your gold standard. But we've also used, like Mary Pat had mentioned, buckle saliva, and we're even starting to really toy around with fingernail clippings. They're a little tougher to get the DNA out of. They don't always give a great yield. And there is potential, just like the other types, that you can have a little bit of blood contamination in them, but sometimes we can send fingernails along with blood samples to almost act as our paired sample testing and trying to just utilize different samples that are less invasive and a little bit quicker as well. And just remembering that these types of procedures are life altering, not only for the patient, but family members, and just trying to keep that in mind as you're going through and knowing that their world is probably going to be flipped upside down for a while as they go through that process. Well, thanks so much, Kaylee, for your time. I know we'll have more resources at the end of this episode, and we really appreciate you talking to us about this evolving treatment. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on. One other plug is that NSGC does have two different subcommittees that could be potentially helpful here. We have a subcommittee for benign hematologic conditions, and then we also have one for more of the malignancy hematologic conditions. Please join us. We love to have more members and it just sparks more conversation and learning from one another. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kaylee, for sharing about your role, walking through the example case and providing helpful information, resources, and terminology.
We appreciate your insights and expertise. Next, podcast subcommittee member Ryan Kuehl will speak with Rebecca Tryon. Rebecca has several years of experience in the bone marrow transplant space. Rebecca is a clinical genetic counselor in the Pediatric Blood and Marrow Transplant Clinic at M Health Fairview in Minnesota, and she is also an instructor in medical ethics. Rebecca will share more about her role and share about how the bone marrow transplant space has changed over time. While some parts of her role overlap with Kaylee's role, you'll see that there are unique aspects to the way that different genetic counselors at different institutions might interact with bone marrow transplant patients. The newborn screening space is a great example of this, and Rebecca will speak a bit about her involvement with newborn screening and conditions such as X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy. She will also cover some key psychosocial considerations and discuss how the pandemic has impacted her role and her patients. So without further ado, over to Rebecca and Ryan. Today, we have Rebecca Tryon with us. We're so grateful for you to be a part of this episode. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you, Ryan. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be on. I'd like to start by asking you if you could share a little bit about your role with patients that experience bone marrow transplants and sort of how you interact with the patient population. Well, I work in pediatric blood and marrow transplant. And so most of my patients are children, although I'd say the oldest patient I've seen in the setting was 92. So we'll say generally. And it depends on the condition, uh, what my role is and how I'm involved. So a number of the conditions we see are conditions like Fanconi anemia or a telomere biology disorder. So used to be called dyskeratosis congenita. In those conditions, we're either seeing somebody after a new diagnosis and establishing care as the team that will be following them throughout their life, doing their screening and management, and then be their transplant team if they need a transplant. Other cases are a little more urgent. They're diagnosed and they're already in kind of a crisis point. They needed a transplant yesterday. And in those cases, we're often moving, as you can imagine, at a very different pace to getting answers and often facing other challenges, like somebody coming with a leukemia or MDS and having difficulties getting a tissue to test. And then the last group of patients I see are some newborn screening conditions like X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy. So it sounds like you have sort of a wide breadth of different conditions that you see as well as age groups. Do you feel that you have a continuation of care, like you're able to see these patients and their families multiple times as part of the team? Yeah, I'd say it depends on the individual family. I've had some people that I saw back as teenagers and I'm helping them through reproductive decisions for themselves now, and especially cases where the genetics are complex, where we don't have a straight answer, where it takes multiple steps. Those individuals, I often see them quite a bit. Other families, I'll see them one time, make sure that they have all their testing done, that they understand everything. And then sometimes I think the best that I can do for that family is not to take up space in a very complicated schedule that they're always having when they come to our center. Yeah, you mentioned the complexity of some of these cases, and I'm assuming that there's a lot of other healthcare providers involved in the care of these patients. Could you speak a little bit to what other healthcare providers you interact with? You know, I was thinking about this as a possible discussion point today and started making a list of all of the people involved in the care for our patients and realized if I started listing all those individuals, that would be the whole podcast. 
BMT was once described to me as similar to the military. There's a lot of different, very specific roles, and we need every part to be working to be functioning well. And so BMT is very expensive. We have financial coordinators that beforehand are figuring out if things will be approved to avoid surprise bills. Social workers are involved to get resources. A lot of family members coming from out of state or out of country and needing travel, needing places to stay. Complex schedulers that put together massive multi week calendars to coordinate them seeing and getting all all the providers and getting all the procedures done that they need. And so by the time they make it to our clinic, that's all kind of set up for them. So they tend to work with the nurse coordinator at those visits, at least one of our hematology oncology doctors or heme onc providers typically will meet with me as the genetic counselor and one of our social workers. In addition, they'll often see subspecialists based on what else is going on, imaging, things of that nature. And then if they do go forward with a transplant, that team list just gets even bigger because you have outpatient teams, inpatient teams. And then we have many people like advanced practice providers who are following the patients on their day-to-day concerns. So it sounds like there's a lot of moving parts. How does the piece of genetic counseling fit into that consortium, that group? Part of that will differ based on the condition. So for the X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy newborn screening cases, I'm their first point of contact. And so I'm the one who's connecting with them over the phone after they've received the diagnosis from the pediatrician and been referred to our center, answering initial questions, trying to get them in as soon as possible. And in my role, in addition to explaining what a screen and a test is and next steps, I'm also talking about why this is on the screen, possible treatments and therapies that are available. And as you can imagine, there's a bigger psychosocial piece to those cases. In other situations where they're going to be seeing the whole team, we could even stick with the same condition if somebody's being referred with XALD, but they're five years old, they already were picked up, they know a little bit about the condition and they're seeing the full team. My role really focuses in, now I'm much more involved in managing the genetic testing, what's been done, explaining that information, reproductive questions. In that case, I'm a lot less likely to be involved in discussing treatment or management in any way, or talking about support and helping them find resources because they'll be seeing our providers and our social workers and our nurse coordinators. Do you feel like your role has changed over time since you began working in the bone marrow transplant space? I feel like it changes week to week. It's so different for each patient population. And as we have you know, new team members and providers coming on, different people have different styles and you know what they want to manage themselves, what they would like a genetic counselor to support them in. So I'd say that's one big change. Another one is changing in testing technology. On the one hand, we now are at a place where we get results a lot quicker for patients. Testing turnaround times are faster. We have panels. We don't have to go gene by gene. We're able to get more information more rapidly. So sometimes it's a one visit, start a test with a reflex plan and and you have the answer. But on the other hand, something that has changed since I started is we used to have some other tests, some more functional tests to aid us in testing that have kind of gone away as next generation sequencing has come up. And sometimes I admittedly miss those when you have a couple of buses and the parent's pregnant and they want to do testing during the pregnancy and you're trying to figure out. Clinically, I think this is the answer. This is a very fussy gene, but we can't say confidently this is right. I do miss some of those functional tests that, for example, with Fanconi anemia, complementation group testing, where I could confirm the gene that has the vuses in it is the protein that's missing functionally in the child's body. 
Yeah, it sounds like throughout your time working in the bone marrow transplant space, the role, it seems to have expanded to include even more conditions like you were mentioning with the newborn screen. How do the addition of more conditions to the newborn screen that might have bone marrow transplant as a viable treatment option affect your clinical practice? Yeah, I think there's a lot of flexibility that's needed to be a genetic counselor in this space. Uh, I imagine that a lot of other spaces too. Part of it is I'm not seeing every condition where bone marrow transplant can be a treatment. And so it depends on the provider teams involved, how comfortable they are with genetics when I'm brought in, how involved I am. So there's some core conditions that I see, and I could see new conditions being added to my list of patients that I would see as newborn screening expands. But some of the conditions, for example, are immunodeficiencies. I know some centers where genetic counselors are always involved in those cases. From my side of things, we have other people who manage those cases, and I very rarely get involved. So it's ever-evolving, and I just try to roll with where we go. That totally makes sense. And I think a lot of genetic counselors can relate to that. Bone marrow transplant has had a unique evolution, I think, in the role of therapeutics. Would you mind talking to the role of bone marrow transplant as it's related to your patients and maybe some of the emerging therapies that might be coming down the pipeline? So something that might be helpful for me to answer this is to take a step back and talk about what bone marrow transplant looks like. So you'll often hear some different words for this bone marrow transplant, hematopoietic stem cell transplant. These we can really use interchangeably. I will say HCT, hematopoietic cell transplant, is probably the more common technical term that's used these days. But I have a feeling BMT is going to be the Delta F508 of our community. I think that term's there to stay. But talking about that treatment, that was something that wasn't really familiar to me coming into this role. And so generally what you have to do in these cases, people go through a pretty extensive workup to make sure their body is in good condition to go through the stress that we're about to put it under. So people have an accurate risk understanding to going into that treatment. How likely is this to be successful? How likely are complications? Then the patient is inpatient inside the hospital in semi-isolation. And through that process, they begin what we call conditioning, which involves radiation or chemotherapy to eliminate whatever is present in their bone marrow to prepare their bone marrow to receive the donor cells or the graft. And then they receive those cells. And the next few months is a bit of a battle of trying to balance keeping the patient from getting infections, opportunistic infections that a healthy immune system could fight off, trying to protect them from those things, while also trying to protect the donor cells from the immune system of the patient. So you're having this complex battle while you're waiting for those cells to be strong enough and be what we call engrafted into the marrow to start providing all of the supports that we need our blood and bone marrow for. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of risks going through that treatment. The graft can fail. People can pass away from complications, from infections. Graft versus host disease is another concern. So there's a lot of risks. That treatment has improved immensely for these rare diseases. So we've seen a lot of advancement, but it's still not an easy course and it's still not risk-free. So now as these gene therapies are coming out and as different trials are there, a lot of families are, you know, if we have a good donor option, do we go through with a proven treatment or do we try to do things that allow us to wait? How hopeful are we that this is going to come out, that we're going to qualify, that it's going to be successful? 
some of the things that we can do to help people kind of carry on until the time when they could do another therapy, some of those treatments can reduce the chance that a traditional bone marrow transplant will be successful for them. So every decision is very complex. And I'm very grateful that we have physicians who predominantly have these conversations with patients to help them make these decisions. Just hearing it, it sounds like there's so many factors that go into a family's decision-making on whether or not to proceed with a bone marrow transplant, or like you said, evaluate the other possible clinical trials that might be available for a given rare disease. What are some social and emotional factors that impact families going through this decision-making process? There's just so much depth of challenges and complexities that families face here. I'd say the first thing, even before you get to bone marrow transplant is, you know, many of us work with families talking about in vitro fertilization with pre-implantation genetic testing, but in BMT, it takes on a different flavor because now you can pick a sibling who could not just be unaffected, but could be a bone marrow donor, colloquially called savior siblings. And so that's one challenge that's a little more unique in this space that I think families feel a little more pressure to go that route to consider that option if their child's a few years out from transplant, because we can share with them the odds if they have a matched sibling donor, if they have a fully matched unrelated donor, or if they don't have a good match in the registry. And so a lot of families are put in this position where they need to decide, do they want more kids? Do they want to go through this complex process? And we've had many families go through many attempts without success. So that can be one big stressor that's a little more unique to this setting. Other things going through transplant, people need to generally come to a center of excellence for some of these rare diseases. So you have to have one parent, often in two income households, stop working to come and stay full time with that child in the hospital to go through the process. So it splits up the family and the support structure when they need it most. And now you have people in isolation. And so patients can have very limited visitors. We have kind of a famous place out in front of our hospital because if a child stands at the top of the place that they can wave up to a sibling who's going through transplant. And so, you know, somebody who's at a younger age and has a higher risk of bringing in diseases that could hurt their sibling going through transplant, we have to be careful of those interactions. So you can imagine that's very isolating. Also taking a child out of their school, needing to do remote school. You know, we've all had experiences with this recently with COVID, but it's something our families knew well. And as you can imagine through all of this, the financial burdens of losing one income at the same time that they're going through this complex treatment and care. How has the accessibility changed for these types of procedures surrounding COVID? Not only is the isolation for the patients that are undergoing the treatment, but in terms of social distancing and trying to prevent the spread of COVID in these types of communities, how has that impacted your practice and how has that impacted the ability for families to proceed and pursue transplants? There's kind of two arms to that. On the one side, I think a lot of our families are saying, you know, we'd never have wished this circumstance on other people, but now people are a lot more understanding of our patients when they're going through this and they're saying, no, I'm sorry, I really can't have you over at my house, even if you're feeling good. You know, people understanding masking and not being able to go into certain public spaces or do certain group activities right after getting done with a transplant and being discharged. I'm not even sure to say a silver lining, but, you know, something that came a greater understanding or empathy from us who are not going through 
bone marrow transplant because we now have a little bit of an understanding of that isolation and those complications. On the other hand, it was very challenging. You know, we had people that needed treatment from other countries and things like that, that just couldn't access the services that they needed from other nations, other states, because of some of the travel restrictions. We did have, however, one month of, I've never seen so many patients in one month in my life. And it was during the time where the restrictions around video counseling across state lines were loosened because of COVID. And we had so many patients that wanted to come here and were not able to come meet with us before. And all of them were like, hey, this is the time. So there was quite a wave there of people being able to access our center for care. So there were definitely a a very mixed feelings about what that experience did for the BMT community. That seems like such a nuanced and interesting view of the pandemic and how it's had an impact on your patient population. For your families that are going through this process, are there resources or actions that seem to help families the most while they're dealing with some of the difficulties of this process? I think there's two pieces. And the most important one has very little to do with us connecting families to other families, either at your organization who have been through the process to patient support groups where they can get connected to those networks. By and large, that's the biggest support that these families face. I know that's something we're familiar with in other clinics and settings, giving people that community so they no longer feel so isolated. At the end of the day, I think that's the most powerful over anything that we do in many situations. The other one being in BMT, there's so many moving parts, so much complexity. You're often the visit six hours in to a very full day of a very full week, not getting a lot of sleep. I don't think most people will be surprised to have been around children that when a child's asked to fast for something like a procedure, they're not very happy and parents are trying to manage that and still get the information they need. So I'd say the other thing that we have the power to do is be really flexible with how we convey information when we convey information. I will frequently end up on calls in the evening, occasionally make up space on a weekend to just get information to families at a time when they can receive it. It's always that balance with work and life, but I think In different settings, we all have occasional cases where we just need to find a way to meet that family's needs. Are there any misconceptions about bone marrow transplants that you'd like to address? Anything that you've seen in your practice that you usually interact with? Yeah, I'd say a couple of things. Uh, One part of confusion that I've had to become familiar with is because somebody who has a condition that may need a transplant, a lot of providers will know, oh, we need to test siblings for HLA matching. And so patients will often come and say, oh, the other kids were already tested for this condition. And so it took me a while to kind of tease out when there was confusion about whether they'd been tested to see if they could be an HLA match or whether or not they're affected. So I think that's one kind of nuance that comes up in this profession because there's multiple genetic tests that are being bounced around. Another piece is around what a bone marrow transplant is. And so I think most of us, we've seen like a a very scary episode of House that I definitely saw as a child and gave me an image of what bone marrow transplant is. Actually, in most cases these days, the cells that we use for a bone marrow transplant don't come from a direct extraction from the bone. They actually come from a process that's kind of similar to donating platelets, doing injections, building up to an apheresis donation to have more stem cells in the blood that you can just extract. 
And we also sometimes use umbilical cords that can be a source of stem cells for transplant. And so it's evolved and changed in ways that I don't think are necessarily familiar, at least with people in the general population. Would there be anything specifically that you would want genetic counselors to know about bone marrow transplant that they might not have experienced in their training or in their professional careers? I'd say the biggest thing I've learned from bone marrow transplant is I do not trust blood at baseline. It's amazing how many situations you'll encounter, and I'm sure many already have, where blood is not a reliable source. So in the conditions I work with, there's a number that have revert and mosaicism, where we can get false negatives on the test. I've definitely seen somatic reversion events as well, where instead of losing the disease-causing variant, there's now another hit that's actually providing a benefit. Any disease that impacts the hematologic components of the body have that potential to have a novel variant occur that provides a benefit that ameliorates some of those symptoms in the blood and gets a proliferative advantage so that you end up seeing that variant when you do what you're hoping to be a germline test on the blood. Then we also have cases where patients arrive with leukemia or MDS, where that blood sample is not reliable for a germline test, or patients that are arriving that their white count is so low that we're not necessarily going to be able to extract sufficient DNA to do a germline test on that sample. We've also had cases of patients where they are after bone marrow transplant and have been you know, seen at a different center, had some testing that was ordered, and there was a misunderstanding there that that tissue post-transplant would not be reflective of the patient, but instead be reflective of the genetics of their donor. So at the end of the day, this has just caused me working in this setting to say, why should I not be trusting blood today? And only when I've excluded all of those possibilities, do I feel like blood is my best tissue and that I can believe it when I get a result back. Yeah, I think in my training, I always learned that blood was best, right? You know, that was sort of the standard to identify genetic variants. So hearing you say that, are there any special considerations that you would have for labs or genetic counselors that are looking at results done on blood work and thinking about these things? I still think what you were taught is the gold standard. You know, blood is best. It's the easiest to access when we're doing testing. Now we use things like buccal swabs and saliva. And the reality is even with buccal swabs and saliva, you're often testing blood. And so really all of those, that's the main tissue that you're using. So I wouldn't deter people from blood being their primary tissue, but I think we need to be honest with patients. There's some conditions, for example, if I'm doing testing of the Turk gene in a patient who has a familial variant, I'm honest with them that there is the potential if we do this testing on your blood, that it can come back negative. And although it's a low chance, it could be a false negative result. And if you want to be more confident, the way to do this test is to do a skin punch biopsy. And honestly, lots of times people will still go about doing that testing on blood because there's a lot involved in the skin punch, but it changes how confident I am when I speak to patients about results. And it changes the options that I offer them for tissue at the start of some tests. And you mentioned having some patients receive germline testing after a bone marrow transplant. So do you have suggestions or things that you consider in terms of the timing of DNA banking or blood banking as patients go through the process? For sure. Something to think about as people are going into transplant. 
ideally if you get them before they've had transfusions, which can complicate extracting and using blood as a DNA source, and before they've gone through things like chemotherapy, that's the time to get a sample to bank if they're going to potentially be going through a bone marrow transplant. That's also the time to talk to them about fertility preservation. I think lots of times by the time they get to a center where they're doing a transplant and they're seeing a bunch of members of a complex team and having that conversation, it's often too late for us to be able to help them with that. And so if you're seeing somebody with a condition that might require a transplant in the future, thinking about putting that on their radar can be huge. One other thing to kind of dispel there is there's some conditions where bone marrow transplants a treatment where we've historically been told these patients are infertile. And one example is men with Fanconi anemia. While we do believe that males with Fanconi anemia have reduced fertility, it's pretty tricky to determine if they really are infertile when you're looking at a population that frequently goes through transplant before reaching reproductive years. And so we've offered sperm banking even to pretty young males if they're capable of providing a specimen. And we have had males with FA have children after transplant from those specimens. So it's an important consideration. Infertility, I always looked at a bit skeptically and try to give them a chance to at least verify if they could have biological children. So Rebecca, is there anything else that you would want to leave our listeners with as it relates to your experiences with bone marrow transplant? You know, every time I listen to a talk or I learn about a new area, I want to take away some things that I learned and I want to take away some things to do. And so a couple of things that I would leave for people to consider doing. One is signing up with Be The Match to be a possible donor. If you're wanting to support equity work, this is an area where you can, in most cases, very painlessly contribute. Most people are on the registry and do not get called. And those who get called, the process is likely less scary than what you kind of have in your head for donating. And you're not obligated if you get that call to donate. You can hear what all is involved and say yes or no at that time. And so we still have children who pass away because we don't have donors for them. And this is still an equity issue where a couple coming in with Northern European ancestry is much more likely to have a match for their child. And so this is a space where we can all very quickly contribute to giving this life and hope to these families. And another option is through donating blood products. I know a lot of people who are very scared of needles, and I'll say that and share that with me. They're very supportive of you if you're going through that, even once a year. You don't have to feel like you have to go every time you get the call, but considering donating at some point. We had a real shortage during this COVID period because a lot of the drives were not set back up and we're still trying to get back up to before numbers. So contributing in that way can be very powerful for these families. Rebecca, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your experience, and your perspective on these matters. We really genuinely appreciate having you here with us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Rebecca. We appreciate your reflections, tips for genetic counselors, and call for action. As our speakers noted, one way you can get involved is to sign up to be a marrow donor or donate blood products. We encourage all of our listeners to check out donation options. And for those who are interested in diving into the topic of bone marrow transplant further, there are two relevant NSGC subcommittees that cover topics related to non-malignant and malignant hematologic conditions. Be sure to check out the hematology subcommittee of the pediatric and clinical genetics SIG and the hematologic subcommittee of the NSGC Cancer SIG. 
That concludes the 2022 season of the NSGC podcast series. Thank you again to all of our speakers for highlighting important topics, sharing personal and professional experiences, and diving into research. We look forward to continuing to explore leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling and offering continuing education credits for the NSGC podcast series next year. Stay tuned for new episodes and new voices in early 2023, led by our upcoming host, Ryan Kuehl. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. For one last time, I'm your host, Naomi Wagner. Ryan and the podcast team will see you next year.